The concern, of course, is that the data that goes into it, so the police officer collecting that data puts it in, which will direct you to a particular neighborhood, and it can create in some way sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you keep saying this from the data, this is a high crime area, and you put in more police officers toward that area, well, it's going to keep being that higher crime area um, until either perhaps you've done away with all the crime or you've arrested everyone there. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from a somewhat rainy Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from... Uh Rockport, Massachusetts, up on the coast north of Boston, Massachusetts, where uh, we're getting a little bit of a torrential rain. I think it's a little bit of the uh, overflow from the the hurricane as it works its way up the coast. Uh, So not a great day here today. Um, I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Craig? Blog called May It Please the Court and book called How to Get Sued. And we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management program for lawyers at goclio.com, App River, email and web security experts. You can find out more about AppRiver at AppRiver.com and PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial, you can go to PCLaw.com slash radio. Well, Craig, uh, with a spike in crime across the country, some law enforcement agencies uh, are turning to technology to aid in decreasing the rising crime rate. Uh, One example of this is the Los Angeles Police Department, where Crime prediction software is being used to thwart would-be assailants uh, by relying on collected data and past crimes within a neighborhood to map out hot spots with high criminal activity and send police units over to the area before, I guess, an actual crime is committed. Well, it may sound like a scene from a science fiction movie or something like Minority Report, but it's real. So this is a program that's beneficial to law enforcement agencies and protecting the general public. Or could this be a method that's problematic, including racial profiling within specific neighborhoods and even violating civil liberties? Well, today on uh, Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to look at this uh, new phenomenon of predictive policing, uh, talk about uh, what it is, what some of the legal issues are, uh, whether there could be uh, Fourth Amendment concerns uh, involved in this, uh, and uh, find out more about it. Well, and joining us now is Professor Dr. Jeff Brantingham. He's the uh, co-founder of the company PredPol. Some of police departments are using PredPol's technology to f- forecast the highest risk crimes and places for future risk. Jeff's a professor of anthropology at UCLA, and welcome to the show, Jeff. Uh, Good morning. And also joining us this morning is Andrew G. Ferguson, assistant professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia, David A. Clark School of Law, where he teaches and writes in the area of criminal law, criminal procedure, and evidence. Uh, Andrew has uh, written uh, about this topic, uh, just looking at a article uh, he wrote, for, I think it's forthcoming, the Emory Law Journal on Predictive Policing, the Future of Reasonable Suspicion. Uh, welcome to the show, Andrew Ferguson. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, Jeff, let's start with you. Uh, explain this to us. What is predictive policing and how does it work? 
Well, predictive policing is a very general term uh, at present. Uh, what it means um, from the point of view of uh, police departments is uh, police departments turning to the data that they do collect and using that data in a smart way to try and get out ahead of crime. So often this means trying to figure out where and when crimes are most likely to occur and then putting resources in uh, those places where they expect crime to occur to essentially deter or disrupt those criminal opportunities. Now, within that 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 general space, there are a lot of different uh, approaches, potential approaches to predictive policing, and there are really two extremes. Uh, on the one hand, you could think of uh, the way of going about predictive policing as being assembling all the possible data that you think might be related to crime, everything from you know, the distribution of bars to the pay cycles of uh, the population in your areas to weather patterns, street network structure, uh, you name it, and putting that all into a massive system and then looking for relationships between those data and crime and out of that coming up with predictions. So that's at one extreme. Uh, the other extreme is to really have a very explicit model or uh, set of descriptions that uh, relate how it is that crime patterns form, where, uh, what is it that drives where and when crimes are most likely to occur, and then build your prediction system uh, out of that. Um, both of these things, I, I don't doubt, are ways that you can uh, predict crime, but they have uh, distinctive uh, benefits and uh, weaknesses. On, on the one hand, where you assemble these massive databases, it's really good if it uh, works in that um, it can be a reliable system for predicting crime, but the problem is that if it generates problems, if uh, it stops predicting crime, uh, then you don't really know why it was working in the first place because you have lots of different data in there, um, many different ways in which those data can combine to predict crime. Uh, it's also the case that it's very challenging to maintain and, uh, both uh, you know, keep up to date and then also maintain the quality of all those different types of data. The other form of prediction where you have a very explicit model uh, relating essentially the behavior of crime patterns and how they emerge in uh, space and time, uh, it's really good in that you have a very explicit model. If it's working, that's good. If it breaks, you also know how to fix it, right? It also does not require lots of different types of data. And what I'll talk about mostly today is the form of predictive policing that we use uh, and the company that we've developed to make it available to law enforcement, that is PredPol. Uh, all we really look at is where and when crimes have occurred and use that information about where and when crimes have occurred to make forecasts or predictions about where and when crimes are most likely to occur in the near future. Well, Andrew, is this the kind of uh, thing that can lead to violations of the Fourth Amendment or search and seizure issues? What, what's um, well, There's nothing what violent of, of the Fourth Amendment in simply policing. collecting, analyzing, and using the crime data. The predictive algorithms do not affect a citizen's right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, which is what the Fourth Amendment protects you against. However, the technology does add an interesting wrinkle to how the current Fourth Amendment doctrine is being used in that those predictive tips will now factor into a Fourth Amendment analysis, uh, which will become the basis for an actual stop when an actual police officer interacts with an actual suspect. And let me just give you a brief example. Assume and that the technology data and, al and analysis and the algorithms are foolproof, and I, I think we might want to talk at some point later about the data behind it. 
But say the computer algorithm states that on the basis of past data, there's a 4% likelihood that a burglary will occur in a particular 500 by 500 square foot area at a particular window in time. That's the type of data, type of information that good predictive policing systems can give you. So the police officer on the street, armed with this information, goes to that area and sees a man carrying a black bag that would perfectly be useful for carrying things away from a burglary, um, but also could be used to carry his gym clothes or his laundry or whatever it is. In a non-predictive world, that man with a bag can't really be stopped based on reasonable suspicion. Right, a reasonable suspicion is the legal test on the, under the Fourth Amendment for whether an officer can point to specific and articulable facts which, taken with the logical inferences from those facts, warrants a belief that the criminal activity is afoot. In simple terms, whether or not the officer can suspect this man who's standing on the corner carrying a bag. Um, just a man on the street with a bag is probably not good enough for Fourth Amendment. It's not a reason to be able to be stopped. But what if the officer can say, look, I see a man with a bag, and I was told by the computer, which predicted that there's a 4% likelihood of this burglary, um, and I think that will change the analysis. So the officer stops the man during the stop, recovers, say, a handgun, and uh, now it goes to court. And the judge is going to have to determine whether or not that tip, that predictive forecast of a burglary of 4%, in conjunction with the the sighting of a man with a bag is enough. And I think the answer is that the tip, the predictive tip, may change the balance of how courts interpret whether or not the officer had reasonable suspicion. And in that sense, it's a very uh, interesting innovation, both in terms of the technology for stopping crime before it happens, but also an innovation in the Fourth Amendment doctrine uh, as it moves forward. Well, it's interesting. I, you know, predictive analytics are are being used for evidentiary purposes uh, in other in other areas. I mean, e-discovery uh, is one where we hear a lot about predictive coding and predictive analytics to try and find relevant uh, relevant evidence. But I, I wonder, Jeff, how how capable uh, is crime of being predicted? I mean, I, I think of crime as, 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 as somewhat random sometimes. Uh, well, how, how accurately can you predict where a crime might occur? I mean, there are two things uh, to think about here. One is that um, crime is actually quite predictable. Um, people in general are uh, quite regular in their behaviors. Um, you know, if you think about your own behavioral routine every day, it's actually probably quite mundane. You get up at about the same time, you uh, go through the same routine, you travel the same rate at work, and you um, travel the same way home. And uh, offenders are no different in going about their daily routines. And on aggregate, when you put that all together, it means that given that people are going about their daily routines uh the crime patterns that emerge out of all of those people going out of their daily uh, going about their daily routines are actually quite regularized now there is a fair amount of noise in uh, both the data um uh that that comes about through uh, reporting of crime uh and in individual uh and uh, aggregate behavior so i i agree with you that there is uh, an element of randomness uh, to it but randomness is actually something that uh uh, we can deal with quite well from a predictive point of view. If you think about flipping a coin, right, there's a very good model to describe what the probabilities are um, for a fair or even an unfair coin about what you should expect to be the outcome. Uh, but you'd think of a coin as a random, uh, you know, a very random uh, thing. When you flip a coin, you don't know whether you're going to get heads or tails, but you will get one of them, and you can describe the probabilities very well. Crime patterns are the same thing. Um, you can uh, uh, go about predicting 
uh, where and when crimes are likely to occur with uh, a, a high degree of accuracy, higher than, um, say, a, a crime analyst uh, engaging in trying to figure out where crimes are most likely to occur. Um, you can use mathematical algorithms to uh, outperform a crime analyst in doing that, for sure. Well, when we talk about uh, racial profiling, how does that fit into it? Do we Are we seeing, uh, you know, simply is it obviously predictive policing is simply because there are a lot of crimes committed in a particular area. Uh, so how does that fit into the analysis of racial profiling? So in, in the case of uh, what we're doing, actually, there there isn't any racial profiling uh, uh, potential in that um, all we look at is where and when crimes are most likely to occur. From the point of view of the predictive algorithm, there's no individual information whatsoever there. The way it's also deployed in, in, uh, in let's say, a given jurisdiction is to say, we've got this entire jurisdiction. We can look at um, uh, the crime patterns and designate individual spatial locations, not people, right, but individual spatial locations that during certain periods of time that are more likely to have crime than others. Now, the thing to recognize is that you take that, you know, very precise information, spatially precise, temporally precise, and also accurate at predicting crime, and that in and of itself is just, um, you know, saying something about the nature of the environment, but recognize also that uh, that is a tool that has to be effectively used in the hands of uh, a police officer, right? So uh, this is really about the fusion of, you know, the knowledge, the experience, the skills, the training, um, the expertise, uh, the professionalism of law enforcement on the street with very precise information about where and when crimes are most likely to occur. Andrew, you're a, f- I'm sorry, I was just going to say, Andrew, you're a, you're a, you're a former public defender as, as well as a, uh, Professor of criminal law, I mean, do you see any risk here of, of, of what Craig alluded to here in terms of uh, the, you know racial profiling? Uh, it seems that if you're targeting high crime neighborhoods, there's going to be perhaps a risk that you're going to be not a risk, but uh, a likelihood, and perhaps that you're going to be uh, targeting lower income neighborhoods and uh, therefore neighborhoods that are you know have higher populations of minorities. Does racial profiling become a concern to you under this model? I think you know both statements are true. Obviously, the analytical data and the analytical software is race neutral. It's not looking uh, about race. It's not focusing on race. I think the concern is that, as you point out, in many jurisdictions, race, poverty, and crime are pretty well correlated. So if you've targeted an area of crime, and it is empirically a high, higher area of crime, which then gets identified with more police presence, it may also be the fact that that is an area of, uh, of primarily people of color, and so that there will be a perceived sense. I think that the people you, I think the police using the technology understand that perceived sense um, that it, it seems to be directed toward uh, communities of color and poor communities because that happens to be where there is an increase in crime. My concern is that the that all of this is predicated on the data. And I think, one, I think Jeff understates the scientific validity of this idea that crime is both mappable and sort of repeatable, as he knows, because he's an expert in it. There have been decades of studies looking at particular crimes, primarily property crimes, burglaries, uh, car thefts, thefts from auto, 
which show that there is this sort of repeat pattern that for whatever reason, um, and there, there are studies about why there are reasons, um, that, you know, a burglary in one house will lead empirically to burglaries in other houses, you know, near in other near houses or this near repeat um, phenomenon. Um, and so that is true and that's accurate. The concern, of course, is that the data that goes into it, so the police officer collecting that data puts it in, which will direct you to a particular neighborhood, and it can create in some way sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you keep saying this from the data, this is a high crime area, and you put in more police officers toward that area, well, it's going to keep being that higher crime area um, until either perhaps you've done away with all the crime or you've arrested everyone there. And so I think that there is a concern, and, and like many things, and I think if you talk to police officers on the street, you know, racial profiling is a broad term and paints with a broad brush. And usually the considerations that are going into the individual officers are far more subtle than race. Um, but race is a part of it. And as we're going to have human beings sort of interpreting the data by acting on the data, it, it you know, it's a part of the criminal justice system. It's a part of America, and it's something that people have to be aware of. I don't think it's a, a red flag that would stop the use of the, the data, but it's certainly something that I think everyone is aware of and should continue to be aware of because it is a problem in our society. Isn't this almost a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy? I mean, in the sense that we know from technology that crime exists in a particular area, so therefore we dedicate more police resources to it. And as a consequence, we simply find crime that where we would have really never found crime before. I think um, there are uh, a couple of points to be made here. One is that um, uh, you have to remember that the type of uh, prediction that um, we're working with with PredPol is actually at a very fine scale. So some of the conversation here has been uh, sort of cast in the form of taking resources from one area of the city and relocating it in another area of the city where in, uh, there's a higher level of crime. And, and as a result of that, um, you uh, tend to skew the available resources towards um, uh, certain neighborhoods. In fact, actually, the predictive policing we're doing is working at a much finer scale than that. If you consider a neighborhood that would be um, – uh, described as high crime overall, actually within that neighborhood, you're going to have some small micro hotspots and other areas that are largely crime-free. And in fact, the way PredPol works is to try and sort out at that very fine scale within neighborhoods, in single city blocks, where are the locations where um, going in, talking with the community, engaging in crime prevention through environmental design, uh, looking at what the problem places are, um, removing opportunities for crime at that very small scale, you know, we're talking 500 by 500 foot boxes, um, is really the scale at which this is going on. It's not about wholesale um, uh, repositioning of resources, but rather uh, trying to get out in front of uh, those those crimes before they happen. And actually, I would see that as having a benefit both from uh, the data quality point of view, in that if you're and from the population point of view. If you are getting out ahead of crime and you're just, um, uh, if you're just uh, denying opportunities in some way for committing crime, uh, then not only are you um, uh, potentially limiting the number of victims, but you're also limiting the potential for uh, certain individuals to have run-ins with the law. So you're, you're essentially, um, you know, 
reducing the number of, of uh, recognized offenders as well as reducing the number of victims. And, and that's a key point here, right, is that we know the limits uh, we, you know, we have a good handle on the limits of, of uh, arrest and incarceration now. We need to be looking at ways that actually try and uh, reduce the opportunity for crime in ways that produce fewer victims and fewer offenders. And that's actually where this is is uh, really heading, I suspect. Well, Jeff, just real quick, explain that. I mean, so you've, you, your, your product is used to identify these, these boxes, uh, uh, or hotspots, or yeah. whatever you might call them. But, uh, how, what do police do with that information? How do they, do they respond to that? So there are a number of different ways that you can deal with it, um, and I'll talk about two layers. One is at, at the scale of sort of uh, 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 strategic planning, right? You can talk about officers either using this information uh, in terms of uh, uh, available time policing. So this is the way that uh, we've done this in Los Angeles, is that officers, when they're not otherwise engaged in, um, you know, calls for service or um, other investigative activities, when they have available time, they um, go to these locations that are within their area of operations, and they engage in problem solving in those locations. So that's one way, available time policing. Uh, the officers might also use this in the context of actual problem-solving units, right? So let's say you're focusing on uh, theft of automobile. You might have a task force that's designated for trying to, you know, solve auto theft problems, and they could be um, specifically tasked with visiting these uh, these sort of small micro-locations around their area of operations and engaging in problem-solving in that way. Now, the second level is, what do we mean by problem-solving? This is really um, where a, a, a range of different policing um, strategies and tactics might come into play. Um, and so, for example, these little micro locations, 500 by 500 foot locations, might be the ideal scale at which to do something like community policing, right? We often think of community policing as let's engage the entire neighborhood, right, the entire community in solving crime, build up um, rapport and trust with the community and um, uh, through that rapport and trust, we'll get better reporting. We'll get, you know, better tips and and uh, better solutions to crime uh, uh, in that neighborhood. I, I I don't doubt that that's a great way to go. But also recognize that the scale at which crime occurs is at single addresses, single businesses, single victims, and single locations. And uh, one way of thinking about these sort of predicted uh, uh, locations uh, through PredPol is that this is the scale at which you really want to engage the community, get officers into those locations where they can get out of their car, talk to the community, ask individuals and businesses what is the problem inside that area, inside that small place, the problem for them, and engage their assistance um, uh, in uh, uh, building sort of that micro-scale you know, community partnership. Alternatively, you might say, well, this is a, these are the ideal locations where you should go in and do what's called crime prevention through environmental design or problem-oriented policing. Oftentimes, officers will drive into these small locations and uh, get out of their car and they'll say, I know exactly what the problem is here. The lighting is problematic or uh, the road signage is not uh, appropriate or this parking lot is not well defended. Uh, and they can do small things by working with uh, local businesses or people to correct some of those, you know, environmental problems, be they queues or, you know, issues of security that can help really just reduce crime opportunity. And oftentimes just uh, changing uh, some aspect of that local setting is enough to sort of skew the opportunity away from 
what offenders see as great opportunities towards uh, what offenders might see as not such great opportunities. All right, well, we're talking about predictive policing. We need to take a short break. We'll be back in just a few moments with much more on this topic when Lawyer to Lawyer continues. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. But I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the excitement is they're now able to realize the, the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. Promote yourself online with Legal Talk Network by becoming a featured lawyer. Your featured lawyer profile lets potential clients and referral attorneys get to know you in a five-minute podcast interview with Legal Talk Network, plus your photo, your bio, and your firm's contact info. Be part of the most progressive online legal network anywhere. Just call Legal Talk Network at 781-551-9960, that's 781-551-9960, or by emailing admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Be a Legal Talk Network featured lawyer now. Protect your firm's email with App River. Send confidential emails with confidence using App River's CypherPost Pro email encryption service. With CypherPost Pro, you'll control who sees your messages, and a patented delivery slip will show you when they're received and opened. There's no hardware or software to manage. You can cancel anytime, and you get a 30 day free trial. All backed by App River's phenomenal care. Visit appriver.com, that's appriver.com, or call 866-223-4645. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too.
Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're talking with Dr. Jeff Brantingham, co-founder of the company Predictive Policing, and Professor Andrew G. Ferguson from the University of the District of Columbia, David A. Clark School of Law, about predictive policing. Let's get back to that conversation. Well, there's a case that's come down from the Supreme Court uh, regarding search and seizure, United States versus Jones, where the Supreme Court ruled that warrantless GPS tracking was unconstitutional. How is that? Um, how is predictive policing going to survive a similar challenge? Well, I, I guess we'll wait and see. I think what's interesting about Jones, which I think will sort of foreshadow what happens when the issue of predictive policing reaches the lower courts and or the Supreme Court, is that in many ways it upends the the governing doctrinal theories that are going on. What happened in Jones is you had a unanimous court that agreed that this attaching of a GPS device without a warrant was a search, but didn't come together in any way to create a theory of what that meant for the future. Um, in the same way, I think crime mapping technologies are going to impact the Fourth Amendment reasonable suspicion analysis. Um, I wrote another article published in the Hastings Law Journal that essentially shows how crime mapping technologies will sort of undermine what the Supreme Court has done in allowing the quote-unquote high crime area to be a factor for reasonable suspicion. One of the things that Jeff just talked about, which I think is so uh, interesting from a constitutional perspective, is that the technology that Predpol and others are proposing really undermines this sort of generic, generalized high crime era that has been allowed for the past 30 years in cases, thousands and thousands of cases, Fourth Amendment cases in our courts that have sort of tipped the scales of the reasonable suspicion analysis. In many a case, um, an officer can get up on the stand and say, I saw this suspicious activity. It occurred in a high crime area. And based on a case, Illinois v. Wardlaw, the Supreme Court, that factor, quote unquote, a high crime area, can change the Fourth Amendment analysis. Um, the Supreme Court has never defined what a high crime area is. Lower courts have gone all different ways. Um, there's no sense about its geographical boundaries. Is it a block, a neighborhood, a district? Is it, you know, temporally determined? You know, is it the last week, the last month? two years, um, and there's no real focus on the nexus of it. And what the predictive policing technologies do is change that by giving a very discreet, very precise area of crime that can show, look, in this particular crime, you know, particular area, there is a particular type of crime in a particular location, and it's temporally important because one of the realities of some of the theories behind the predictions is that they sort of decay over time, like the prediction is valid for a shorter period of time. It doesn't last forever. And so one of the fascinating things that's going to happen in courts is when judges and courts have to analyze uh, sort of the quote-unquote high crime area, the predictive policing technology is going to show that that's an antiquated um, term of art that may very well need to be replaced by the new technology that exists. Jeff, do we have any evidence that this works, that it's effective in reducing crime? Well, there, we, in, the, in the work that we've done in Los Angeles, there are sort of three distinct things that we can say. One is that the, the technology is, in fact, uh, better than both sort of the state-of-the-art technology that's out there, uh, as well as the sort of trained crime analyst at identifying uh, where and when crimes are most likely to occur. So the predictive accuracy uh, is demonstrated. And in the deployments that we see, uh, there there are some other things that, that we know. One is that um, officers actually do uh, buy into using this. Um, uh, you can imagine if... Um, you know, a technology runs counter to policing practice uh, and doesn't square with 
let's say, an officer's uh, knowledge and experience of the environment in which they work, that they're not going to adopt this sort of thing. And we've been able to demonstrate that, in fact, they are able to adopt this. And it does fit within their policing routines in uh, a similar way uh, or in a, a seamless way. Um, and then in the deployments that we've seen in Los Angeles, we do get a, a reduction uh, in crime. Uh, uh, for example, we see uh, uh, in terms of burglary, theft of vehicle, and theft from vehicle, we see a 12% decline overall. And then in burglary in particular, we see uh, uh, nearly a 25% decline uh, overall. There are a lot of things that go into this. Remember, the technology allows you to say something about where and when crime is most likely to occur. And you combine that with sort of the knowledge, skills, and experience of the officer. And it's really uh, that that uh, fusion of um, components that that uh, uh, potentially leads to crime reduction. You know, could you be creating a pattern where there really is none? Well, it's it's driven by the data. The thing to recognize about uh, crime data and crime reporting is that it really is about a partnership between the public and the police. Um, I, we had mentioned before about a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, the self-fulfilling prophecy uh, runs both ways, right? If you have a community that feels uh, that they are not supported by the police uh, and they decide not to report crimes that occur to them or their friends or their neighbors uh, they, and the police don't respond to it, well, then that in itself is also a self-fulfilling prophecy because the police can't respond to crime that um, uh, hasn't been uh, brought to their attention. Uh, in this case, uh, what we're working off of is data that uh, has been reported to the police. Uh, most you know, police contacts and most police data don't actually come through police catching people in the act. It comes through public reporting. And so I would like to emphasize that that partnership between the, uh, the police and the public is actually really important to generating uh, uh, the, uh, uh, our understanding of where and when crime is most likely to occur. Um, well, let me, let me ask Andrew. Andrew, I mean, you've, you, you've written a lot about this. Is there any question in your mind that there will be a legal challenge to this uh, at some point? Uh, and, and if I understand your your analysis, uh, your your conclusion is that it probably will withstand constitutional scrutiny. Is that right? And Andrew, is, as you answer Bob's question, if you could as well wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information for our listeners. We're just about at the end of our program, and then we'll turn to Jeff. Um, sure. Uh, two points on that. Um, First is, you, my sense is that as the technology evolves and develops and expands and goes across the country, which it really is if you look at the states and the cities that are adopting it, there will be cases where the primary justification for the stop is what the officer observed plus this predictive forecast, which fit what the officer observed. Um, as uh, I've written, and if anyone wants to read the full article, it's available for free on the SSRN uh, website under my name. Um, the constitutional analysis, if done carefully, will show that it, I think predictive policing will be a plus factor, that with a corroborated observation, it probably will survive constitutional scrutiny. Um, but it raises a lot of very interesting questions that I hope that both the police officers and police administrators who are adopting te technology recognize and, and think about, um, as well as the communities where these uh, technologies will be adopted, think about. Um, the important thing that I would you know, wrap up on, I guess, is that there are really two questions. One is, 
is this technology going to go forward and change things? And the answer to that is yes, and it should. It's very smart policing. It's very predictively um, focused and precisely focused. And I think it is the future. And I think that everything that Jeff said is absolutely accurate. And I think we should be encouraging more of this type of innovation. Um, however, it will also have legal effects. It will have constitutional effects. And the purpose of the article and the purpose of these discussions is to start raising the questions of what happens um, when the officer relies on it in court. What's a court supposed to do? Because there is no um, constitutional analysis on it that's clear. And how you interpret what the predictive uh, policing uh, information is. Is it like a tip? Is it a profile? Is it like a high crime error? will change the analysis. And that's sort of the question that I'm um, opening, um, and uh, you can, my contact information is all available on the UDC David A. Clark School of Law website, as are links to the articles. So um, thank you very much, and uh, I'll turn it over to Jeff. Thanks, Andrew. I, I, I agree with what Andrew says here, is that this is the direction in which all industries are moving, which is more data-driven, uh, sort of evidence-based um, uh, usage within those contexts, and policing is no different uh, in that. Um, I would also add that uh, right now we're sort of, especially in the United States, at an unprecedented, unprecedented time of incredibly low crime rates. Um, for example, in Los Angeles, we haven't seen crime rates uh, like this since the 1950s. And that raises interesting challenges as well. That's great news, uh, and, and the, the, the causes of that are, are complicated. But it also means that a lot of the if you will, low-hanging fruit in policing has already been tapped out. And if uh, we're looking at further crime reductions, right, or maintaining uh, these low crime rates, police departments are going to have to look to um, sort of much more sophisticated, more precise, more data-driven techniques to try and suss out what is happening with crime and how can we uh, use our uh, limited resources in the most effective way to deal with crime. Uh, our approach to uh, that is to provide a, a, a um, simple-to-use and straightforward tool that relies on um, uh, the data that's available and sophisticated sort of mathematical approaches to uh, figuring out what's going on with crime patterns. And I encourage um, interested uh, people to go and look at predpoll.com for more information about this technology. Thank you. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure to have both of you on. Thank you very much for your thoughts and for sharing all that information. It's a very interesting and uh, kind of cutting-edge technology. Uh, sounds like it's it's got a lot of development that uh, is, is available for it, but uh, certainly a very interesting idea. Bob? Yeah, well, uh, let me uh, echo the thanks in uh, having uh, Jeff and Andrew on uh, for taking the time to be with us and talk to us about this. I, I think it's fascinating. Uh, I think it, it sounds like, uh, you know, a, a smart use of uh, analytics uh, to, uh, to to help target crime. Uh, you know, I, I can see where there can be some concerns about uh uh, Fourth Amendment issues or, or civil liberties issues, but it, it doesn't really sound like it's being deployed in a way that that raises those concerns directly, and perhaps is perhaps even less uh, less of a concern than than some other technology tracking that's being done, uh, or some other uses of technology to track or chart crime uh, that's being done. So uh, I, I think it sounds it's really interesting, and I, I think it sounds interesting. Well, and Bob, we want to also, in addition to thanking our, our guests, we want to remind our listeners they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all of our shows on 
iTunes. Yeah, and just you know, a reminder to our listeners that the Legal Talk Network has a whole bunch of really good podcasts. Uh, and if you haven't been to LegalTalkNetwork.com lately, you might want to get over there and check out uh, the whole stable of really uh, interesting podcasts on technology, on uh, in-house uh, legal issues, on uh, solo practice, on practice management, on paralegals. I mean, the whole range of stuff, uh, really good shows. So uh, encourage our listeners to get over there and check it all out. Great. And Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. We'll see you then. See you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.